Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is why 1 Timothy matters. We're at the beginning of our study and discussion on the passages in 1 Timothy that are covered in book three of the Eden book series. In the Eden book series, book one is the book of Eden, Genesis chapters two and three. Book two is beyond Eden, Ephesians five and six. This book is titled Back to Eden, 1 Timothy 2-3, and the subtitle is Corrected and Restored by Jesus, the Faithful Word. So we're going to go into the book three of the Eden book series. This one's Back to Eden, 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. Why 1 Timothy matters. Joanne Hagemeyer is with us, and would you like to get us going with exercise number one? Oh, certainly. We're going to identify the three parts of 1 Timothy. Paul wrote his letter to Timothy in three parts, and each one is longer than the other, and each part is built on a shared major truth, and this major truth is the key point of each part. So my question to you is, can you describe those three parts for us? I'd love to, and I'm thinking back about a time I was sitting in a a meeting, and there was a, a scholar, she was presenting a study on one of Paul's letters, I don't remember which one. And uh, as she was going through it, she, she made it an aside, a side comment that just was like an electric shock to me. It's like a bolt of lightning. <laughs> I don't think I saw anybody else light up like I did, but it, I'd been waiting for this piece of insight. She said that in the letters that Paul writes, usually near the beginning, he, he gives an outline of what he's going to be saying next. And I thought to myself, well, in First Timothy, I've never heard anybody talk about an outline and First Timothy, what he's going to say next. So when the meeting was over, when I got home, boy, I got a hold of my Bible and I started looking for that outline. And the next day, <laughs> the next day, I don't remember how long it took me, but I found it. The outline is found in Paul's description of his three sins in chapter one. And based on those three sins, then he develops three more parts as he goes along. So that's a, that's a big discovery. But I, I, I wondered, it didn't come till maybe halfway through chapter one. So I thought, well, what do I do with chapter one compared to chapter two and chapter six? And so the more I looked at it, I thought there's another passage. There's another pattern, rather. There's another pattern in the book of First Timothy. What are, the, what are the major parts of the letter of First Timothy? And 
A lot of people say, well, there's six sections to First Timothy because I see six big numbers in my Bible, chapter one and chapter two and chapter three. But those numbers were added later, and usually they're pretty good at figuring out where to stick a letter. But I didn't want to go by that. I thought, well, what were Paul's parts to the letter? And the more I studied it, the more I realized that there are only three parts, not six. And they don't match, they don't pair up with the, where the chapter breaks are, are put either. That's what I, we're going to talk about is my answer here to exercise one. What are the three parts of 1 Timothy? So Paul wrote his letter to Timothy in these three major parts, each one longer than the other. Each part is built on a shared major truth that's in the middle of it. And this major truth is the key point of each part. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 is the first one. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 to 316 is the second part. And 1 Timothy 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 all make up the third major section to uh, 1 Timothy. So what would you say would be the summary statements for each of those sections? So in each of those sections... Paul is talking about somebody different. In the first section, he's talking about himself. So we have Paul about talking about Paul in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1. Starting with verse 18 in chapter 1 through 316, he's talking about the, uh, the, the whole reason for the letter, which was Timothy, stay in Ephesus and correct those who have gone astray. So he's talking about the wayward overseers, pretty much all through that, chapter 1, verse 18 through 316. First one then is about Paul himself. Second section is about the wayward overseers. The third section is about Timothy. And if you were going to pull out key truths, what would they be for each of these sections? Uh, the key truth is the same. It's the same key truth. And that is the pistos halagos. I just quoted three Greek words. Pistos halagos. Faithful is the word. Halagos is word in Greek, and pistos is faithful. And so he says in the middle of 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 17, he says, pistos halagos. In other words, Jesus was faithful. And because Jesus was faithful, my life was transformed. So then he talks about the wayward overseers who are astray, but he wants to have Timothy correct them. He wants them to get back into service. And so uh, pistos halagos, the faithful word, can uh, correct and restore those wayward overseers. The application for chapters 4, 5, and 6 on Timothy, he wasn't a wayward overseer. He wasn't like Paul. He was himself. And these three chapters talk about how the faithful word Jesus empowered him to conduct his ministry. You've really described how these truths build on and support each other. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about that? The reason for the letter then was, the whole letter was to encourage Timothy and he says, look, you, you should be encouraged. Uh, I was made faithful by the faithful word. These wayward overseers are being made faithful by your training of them. And don't forget by Jesus, the faithful word. And Timothy, you're going to be faithful. Jesus has done it for you in the past. He's going to keep doing it. It really changes the whole tone of the letter to see it in that way. The tone of the letter as people have been reading it, right? In the Exactly. Uh, yeah. And they're, they're finding these six sections in the book of 1 Timothy, and they're coming up with a meaning for each of these six. And that's just not the way the letter goes together. Yeah. So let's establish then the purpose of Paul's epistle. You've really been doing that already, but we'll talk about it some more. What were Paul's experiences in Ephesus according to the following passages? We're going to start with Acts 18. So we know a lot about Ephesus because uh, the book of Acts talks about it. And I'd like to turn in 
get a, now I'm using happen to be using an NIV right now, and uh, Acts eighteen nineteen. I'll just read. The, the other day in our adult class at church, they asked for comments, and my wife Joy said, "Well, let me read this passage." And of course, she's the Old Testament professor, and so she was reading from uh, Deuteronomy, I think. And uh, and she kept reading. <laughs> there were there were a lot of good ideas, and she just simply read the scripture out loud, and it ministered to all of us. Too often we don't spend our time digging into the scripture, so I'm just going to read some verses here, starting with eighteen nineteen, and then I'll make comments as we go along. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, when I first read this verse, I, I thought on the map, um, Antioch is north and yet Caesarea is south of there. What is this up and what is this down? And it says, he went up and greeted the church. And I thought, where was that? And I've looked at a number of modern English translations, and they stick in a few words here. So when he went up and greeted the church, modern translations are saying he greeted the church in Jerusalem. Well, of course he did, because the Bible uses this phrase all the time, to go up. And every time you go up, it's going up a mountain, and it's that mountain. It's the mountain on top of which sits the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. So what's going on here is that Paul left Ephesus, got in a boat, he sailed to Israel, to the coast. He got off, he landed at Caesarea, and I've been there, and it's uh, right there on the sea. You can still see many of the Roman ruins that Paul would have seen. It's a beautiful beach city there on the coast. And then from there, he went up the top of the mountain. He greeted the people at the church in Jerusalem. Then he went down to Antioch, and for us, it would be north up to, up to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, I'm back now in verse 23, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Basically, he's now in northern, in eastern Turkey, and where he had been on his very first missionary journey. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, so obviously they're still attending, they're in the synagogue, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So here's this great Bible teacher and this woman and her husband, they're teaching him more because they know more. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, Greece, northern Greece, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. If they had been if the Jews there had been teaching that Jesus was the Christ, he wouldn't have refuted them. It's just that they, those Jews right there were unbelievers. Then back in uh, chapter 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So through the interior of Asia Minor. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, 
John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So now Paul enters into the synagogue and speaks boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. After that, I'm not going to read all of this, but after that, there was a riot at Ephesus and Paul was there. So he has a, a long uh, batch of experience. And we know that all of Asia Minor, starting from Ephesus and radiating out, and it was the, the city's center, uh, came to know the word of the Lord. That whole background really helps us understand this letter. So let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians talks a lot more about this. Uh, so let's go to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and let's tie it together with 1 Timothy 1, 3, the second half of that verse, 3b through verse 7. What's Paul's experience there that helps us? Yeah, well, he gives us the purpose of the letter here, and, and it, well, the background would be Ephesians 4, 11, 12, and 13. It was he who gave some to be apostles. So we're talking about uh, Jesus. Jesus, uh, not all believers, some believers now get these, these assignments from, from Jesus and the spiritual power to do so. Starting with verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And what are those people supposed to do? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So he's this is the fourfold or fivefold, depending how you count it. These are the gifts that are given to certain ones in the church, and they're supposed to use that to build everybody up. Now, that's important to us because starting in 1 Timothy 3, some of those people who were gifted to do that had gotten into trouble. So let me start here. He's, writing, he's just introducing his letter to Timothy, and he says in verse 3, As I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach false doctrines any longer. By the way, let me just pause. The Greek there is tisson, which means certain persons. But the NIV I have right here in my in front of my eyes says certain men. Okay, if you want to use men as a generic, you know, people, that's fine. But it should be clear that you may command certain ones, certain people, not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. Oh, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So these fourfold people, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastor teachers, we can just use the word for overseers. Not all believers in the church are called to do this. Some are called to do this. And the focus of 1 Timothy is dealing with these certain ones now that are set apart and they're supposed to minister to everybody else. 
So exercise three is going to explore Paul's wordplay with the word word. All right. And this time I want to ask you the questions, Joanne. All right. Mm -hmm. So it says here, compare Genesis chapter one, verses one through five with the gospel of John chapter one, verses one through five. And we have two sub points here. How is Jesus portrayed and what associations are made between uh, words and Jesus, etc.? So that's a great question. And I thought maybe what I'd do is read those two passages together and see how they relate to each other. Because the beginning of the Gospel of John is very like the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. And so when we look at this passage, we see in the beginning there's God, but there's also the Spirit of God. And there's also the Word of God. Where? Then God said. And right after God speaks, there's light. And then God separates the light and the darkness. Now let's look for those themes when we look at the beginning of John's gospel. And I'm going to read the first five verses, just as I did in Genesis. And here it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of humankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. And so here we're seeing the same themes. We see the word, this time the word is first in John's eyes, because the word we're going to find out is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word not only was with God, as it was in Genesis, God speaking, but the word was God. And so now we're getting a sense of the Trinity. God was the Word, and the Word was God. Those things are together. And all things come into being through this Word. How? Well, we see in Genesis that after God spoke, now came the light, and the light made the darkness evident, and so now the light and the darkness are separated. Here we see the same thing in John. The light shines into the darkness. The darkness cannot grasp the light, which is itself a play in words. So when we look at these two passages together, we see associations between word, but also speaking, between God and Jesus. And Paul picks up on that word play, talking about the word, both as a saying, but also as the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. And what, you, what we have here in, in the beginning of John is that he gives Jesus the name. He doesn't use the name Jesus. He just calls, literally calls him the word. So that in Greek, that's logos. And so he says, uh, and the word was God or the logos was God or meaning Jesus was God. And so when Jesus spoke, there was light. Okay. So that's a marvelous comparison because it tells us who is the logos. Now in 1 Timothy 1.15, that's where we find, first time we find the, the Greek phrase pistos halagos. And so with this background from John and Genesis, 
we would say pistos, which means faithful, is halagos, the word, meaning Jesus. So faithful is Jesus. So that's, that's how I'm looking at this. It can, does this make sense? Faithful is Jesus. So then we take a look at, at the verse. Let's see, what is the specific verse? 1 Timothy 1.15. The Greek says pistos halagos, which I would like to say faithful is Jesus or Jesus is faithful. So what happens, the result of Jesus being faithful has changed Paul's life. Let's take a look at verse back at chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Jesus, our Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. That's 1 Timothy 1, 12. So Christ Jesus, our Lord, considered me faithful, appointing, that's hard to understand, and I've spent a long time studying it and meditating on this passage. And basically what he's saying is, the fact that he appointed me, worked in two ways. One is that in his own judgment, he said, okay, you are going to be a faithful servant. I am naming you and you will be my faithful servant. Not only because I named you and gave you that status, but also because I'm going to empower you and you will, you will be able to be the faithful servant. That's important to those who are the, the, the servants of the local church, prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers and that's important to them because this example of paul shows that if we have been called to that kind of a ministry that's the way jesus works he's faithful and he will empower us to do that kind of a, that kind of service now there's a double meaning here and i like that because i have i i don't remember jokes very well somebody says oh have you heard the one about and usually i can't remember what the one about story was and so I've never been a really good joke teller. But when I was in high school, I came across uh, a youth minister who was a punster. And I was a roommate of his at a conference for a whole week long in Chicago over Christmas break. And when I came home, I was infected. <laughs> I, I had the pun disease. And every time I turned around, I was looking for a double meaning of a word. And, and I thought, oh, isn't this great? And everybody would groan and then maybe grin too. And what I see here is a pun. And the Hebrew Bible uses puns all the time. And there's, uh, there's double and triple meanings, the, the sound of a word, the letters of a word, the way it's used in a sentence. So it's not surprising that Paul would use a pun. And in this case, he says, Jesus has been faithful. He changed me. He can change you. And then he says, oh, yeah. And, and by the way, the word logos can also mean saying. So, by the way, I have a saying for you. And then the saying is... Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How that was used in that day, I'm not sure, but I'm sure that everybody in the church was familiar with that saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds an, an application of whom I'm the, I'm the chief of all both sinners. Now, Paul's life was changed because Jesus appointed him to his service so let's get in now to, to question number three. Compare 1 Timothy 1.15 with 1 Timothy 3.1. Well, 1 Timothy 3.1 is in the middle of a long section now where Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, now I want you to deal with these wayward overseers this way, and I want you to deal with this other group of wayward overseers that way. But you won't see it in your English Bible just like you just didn't see it in 1.15. Let me read 3.1 for you. Here is a trustworthy saying. Oops. 
That's pistos halagos again. So I would like you to cross it out with your pencil if you've got it. And just write in there, Jesus is the faithful word, or Jesus is faithful. And then he says, if anyone sets his heart or her heart on being an overseer, that one desires a noble task. The problem with our Bible translations is they have a male bias, it seems like, as we're reading through here. They, they, that they, It used to be in the original NIV, they used to say, if a man desires to be an overseer. And they've corrected that in the version I'm reading here. and says, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer. So that's that's a good improvement. So people say, well, why do you why do you say that there's a discussion on some of these things? Because there is a discussion on some of these things. Right here's an example. They used to say man, now they say anyone. And there's some other areas where we need to also get that clarity that we're involving both males and females. How about exercise number four, Joanne? Certainly. Well, let's take a look at Paul's teaching on the word after you gave us that really good teaching yourself. To whom is the faithful word connected in each section of Paul's letter? For example, in 1 Timothy 1.15, the word is connected with Paul's salvation. Paul's salvation, yeah. Paul's salvation and Paul's appointment to service. And then in 1 Timothy 3.1? The word is connected with restoration of wayward overseers. In 1 Timothy 4.9? The word is connected with, uh, with Timothy. So who are the three groups of people that Paul's addressing now in section two of his letter? We start out with 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. All right, now this, this is where we pick up the outline that Paul gave us that I mentioned a while ago. Uh, in his outline, he says, I was, and he says three things that he did. I was a sinner in these three ways. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And I was injurious or disruptive in church. And so here, let's see if the outline uh, pops up. Remember, the first thing in the outline is blasphemers. Well, sure enough, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, he talks about the two blasphemers, and they have the great names of Alexander and Hymenaeus. So those are blasphemers. All right. So what about 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7? So that's the second group of sinners that are like his second sin. And in this case, you go back to his second sin. He says, I was a persecutor. And now he's talking about persecutors. So he's talking about those who are in authority, those who are actually persecuting the church, like during the riots and afterwards in Ephesus or also in Corinth or other times, or those who had uh, the potential to persecute. And so he says about those persecutors, he he'd been a persecutor, an official persecutor of the church. He was throwing people into prison. And he was a, a terror to the church early on before he became a Christian. But uh, now he's talking about these persecutors in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and he, and he says, you know, I want them to be saved, just like it was good for him to be saved. All right, and then the third section? Yeah, we've got 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Well, th now he's moved on to his third sin. He doesn't use the same word, injurious, but he does describe people who are, are disrupting the church. And in 1 Timothy 2, 8, he talks about, a, a, not all the men, but some of the men overseers who were disrupting the church. They were teaching, and what they were doing was causing dispute and doubting and all kinds of uh, disruption in the church. And then he moves on. He says, likewise, in 1 Timothy 2, 9, likewise what? Well, I got some other disruptors I want to talk about, and those are the women who've been disrupting the church. And both these groups, the men and the women, are the ones that Timothy was supposed to stay and correct uh, in Ephesus. And that's the million-dollar question. According to 1 Timothy 3, 1, who can correct and restore the people in these groups? And this is the high point of the passage. Paul 
Paul did not write in a linear fashion. You know, this is the main point, and then I have subpoints below it. No. Instead, he wrote in a, in a form of an arch, of a chiasm, of a rainbow. And the high point of the passage is the middle of the passage. And the middle of the passage is 1 Timothy 3.1. So if you put a chapter break there, it looks like, you know, there's... It's, it follows that there was stuff about chapter 2, and now there's some other stuff about chapter 3. No, no. One or two eight all the way to three sixteen they go together as one long passage. The high point is is three one, and it's this powerful empowerer, Jesus the Logos, who called these people to ministry, and now Timothy is restoring them, and Jesus then will make them faithful. So it's really important for all of us who are described in Ephesians four eleven through thirteen. Now maybe in your church, you're not one of those people. This still can apply to you. But if you are one of those people, this certainly applies to you. You're called to be faithful and to witness, to train, to counsel, to encourage, to take the word to the unreached. Your job is, is difficult. But Jesus is right there, and he called you in the Spirit, and he will make you faithful, just as in Paul's life he was faithful, in Timothy's life he was faithful, and in the lives of those who were corrected in Ephesus, you will be made faithful. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3, and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.